Welcome to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts, the podcast that brings tailors together through open and authentic conversation. We post new episodes periodically, talking with tailors, merchants, and other businesses that make up the sartorial world. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Enjoy the show. Thank you for accepting my invitation to come uh, come and talk with me on on our podcast. Yeah, no, no, no not at all, Matthew. It's actually uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for for the invite. Um, you know, I really kind of admire and appreciate what you're trying to do with this podcast. You know, it's something that I do feel feel that the the tailoring industry, even the clothing industry in general, you know, it needs a big kind of of what you're trying to accomplish. So, yeah, thank you. I think is the the more appropriate thing. I should oh, be wow. thanking you rather than the other way around. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. But it wouldn't it, right. it wouldn't be possible without people like yourself. So, how have you been handling things with the whole COVID situation? Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I think we've in this time, it's, it's of course, you know, certainly challenging for many. We've got the the restrictions. Obviously, the pandemic's wreaked havoc on many lives. But I, you know, I think one of the positive things is that we do find more people are willing to share. You know, you've got experts. It was experts in in various fields taking the time out to you know to record podcasts and to to kind of um, share the knowledge that they have. So that's probably one one benefit that's come out of this whole situation. But yeah, for for me personally, it's been uh, it's been a bit of a juggling act uh, with the tailoring and then obviously Mundus TNA. So yeah, it's just a just a case of yeah balancing the two, dividing up the time, but trying to keep busy as much as I can. Um, has been fairly busy, which you know I can be thankful for, uh, especially on the tool side. Um, with the tailoring side, you know, I was I was looking to kind of set up, but uh, in the current climate, it's a bit difficult, especially about the personal you know, interaction, which is so yeah. uh, so important with bespoke. It's quite you know the Zoom alternative is not not as as ideal, especially when you're starting out with exactly. meeting somebody you've particularly never met when before. You're starting out. Yeah, that's the challenge because you know people they need to get a feel for your your ambiance, you know how how you carry yourself, you know, so that you can really kind of you know portray or you portray the the kind of enthusiasm you have with with the clothing, and then hopefully they can kind of see that passion and it speaks through. But it's a bit difficult to kind of reflect that same level of kind of emotional connection over Zoom. So yeah, that's probably something that's a bit more on hold. Um, I've managed to do some freelance work, uh, which kept us ticking over as well. But and then develop the tool side. So busy, fairly busy. So you know, can't complain. Uh, you know, thank God it can it can be a, a lot worse. So yeah, we do what we can and then try to use the time to grow and develop and then come back stronger really that is that is the plan well no that's definitely great i mean much better to have busy hands than than idle ones i would say i'm very thankful that you've been able to kind of make the best of a bad situation and, and i'm sure you know you're still doing that yeah. as as things kind of regress in um what month is this now we're going we're heading into november now and things are kind of going yeah. we're sliding back a little bit unfortunately and as far as the coronavirus goes but you mentioned a couple of things so you mentioned monday's tna you mentioned kind of setting up your own shop and ha- and you know working with clients. Both of those things are big subjects for us. I, I really want to kind of understand where you're coming from. And you know the first question that I, that I really have for you is, where were you before you got into tailoring, and what was it that pushed you to make that jump? Yes, that's going back almost half half a decade now. Um, so yeah, going back half a decade, I was in accounting, believe it or not. 
So of course, you know, that's the natural uh, progression, isn't the it? The trajectory the you go from accountant yeah, from accounting to tailoring. That's that's a new thing, I think. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, completely opposite ends of the spectrum, if you would, especially in terms of creativity, because you don't really want to be a creative accountant. That's not that's quite frowned upon. So yeah, it's um with with accounting. Uh, you know, I was studying with ACCA. I've done a fair bit of the exams for that qualification. So I, I was doing accounting for five years. Um, I was I was in accounts for, which has you know to be fair, it did give me a good basis and understanding of the business side and just how how money works, which has come in extremely handy, especially you know in the in the real world when you have to kind of deal with the the finance side of things. So it's been a extremely good um, kind of foundation. How has the accounting background helped you? I think a lot of tailors oh. get into tailoring and they're maybe they're artistic or they're just very passionate or maybe, you know, they just like working with their hands. And most of the time, the business kind of goes by the wayside. You know, it's kind of like as yeah. long as we're working, we're okay. And That's there's not it. a ton yeah. of thought that goes into the business side. I mean, absolutely right. I mean, you know, you find it, and it's quite unfortunate, really, because you do find these, you know, incredibly creative people. But you know, once you neglect the, the kind of the financial side, it really is, it doesn't, it becomes unsustainable. So, you know, the numbers do have to make sense. Unfortunately, it's just the, the system that we live in um, that, you know, the money just has to make sense in the, in the ideal circumstance. We wouldn't have to worry about money and we can just let <laughs> the creativity, you know, creativity flow. But yeah, certainly with the accounting background in terms of kind of, I think the main thing is calculating your expenses. That's that's the main thing because there's so many expenses. And if you don't properly account for expenses and the time and um, allocate template, uh, you find that, you know, you'll be doing so much. But when you do run the numbers, you might be paying yourself, you know, five pounds an hour or you know five dollars an hour or something and then realistically speaking you know that's not sustainable in the long run so yeah just kind of allocating and then it also helps with you to be able to properly price things because you see how much time it takes to actually perform a task you know what you can do on your end to be more efficient how you allocate it correctly you know how you can allocate the, the money you do get you know your revenue in the, the best places possible and well, yeah, yeah, so all, with, all those kind of little things kind of helps. Good point there was just calculating your expenses, which may seem like a very trivial or simple thing to do. But at the end of the day, you're always going to have expenses with tailoring because it's not, you know, you're not That's building it, yeah. an app where you say, okay, we need to put in X amount of money to develop this app. And then after we'll have revenue coming in on work that doesn't need to be so, done. You know, the app's built so you can market that and yeah. sell that. Uh, and improve it, but you have money coming in and your expenses go down. But with tailoring, you're always going to yeah. have those those hard costs that that remain. Yeah, precisely. And I think the it's it's very easy to kind of overlook the minor expenses. So like you know, you buy you know some thread or buttons, and you think, oh, you know, it's okay, it'll just come back around. But you know, it's a, they say it's a small hole that sinks a big ship. You know, so if you yeah. kind of you don't keep track of all these little expenses, it can hurt, hurt a business in the long run. And unfortunately, you can get a very exceptionally creative and uh, proficient tailor, but without the numbers, you know, they often no longer are able to sustain the business. But Matthew, I think I, I digress, because the main the main question was what got me interested in tailoring. Exactly, um, I was just about to read yeah, to so, read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, get back on that. So yeah, effectively, it was just, you know, sitting there you know, on the desk, you know, typing away. And, you know, accounting, as, as lovely as it is, it is quite cyclical, and it's 
it's all numbers. You know, you, you ask me at the end of the day, what did I do? And I couldn't really tell you what I did. Sometimes you can't even remember what you've done. You know, you've done something, but you just come home and, you know, that's it. Then you do it again the next month. And then I'm saying that I was thinking, you know, could I honestly speaking do this for the next 30 to 40 years? And that kind of thought gave me that motivation to kind of think of something. You know, because one thing I, 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 you know, I didn't want to do is to come, you know, or think 30 years down the line, oh, if only I, I tried this, you know, and you, you hear so many stories that, oh, when I was younger, I would have done this, I would have done that. But all of that is, is all for naught, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, if you didn't, then unfortunately, there's really nothing you can do at that, at that stage. So, yeah, one thing I didn't want to, to have was that, that kind of thought in the back of my head, oh, if only I... I done that. So I thought to myself, you know, I have to kind of think of something. And and another thing I realized because I'm a I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. I used to, you know, spend a considerable amount of time organizing the paperwork. You know, I'll make sure that everything's stapled in the same angle, stacked nicely, and then the manager will just come and rip it open and just, you know, scribble all of it. I'm just like, <laughs> I need <laughs> I need to kind of channel this into into a industry that actually appreciates it. So, you know, because nobody really cares if the, you know if all the the staples on the in the, on reconciliations are aligned in the same angle. Um, so yeah, when that dawned on me, that kind of gave me a bit of a, a push as well. So then I guess really it came it came to the point where you know you walk down the high street and then everything starts to look the same. And then I kind of realised, I don't remember the last time I was excited about something, you know, a piece of clothing or an item that, you know, you think, because remember when we was younger, you know, there might be this new trainers or this new, you know, something that, and you're thinking, oh, I need to get that. And then you would save up for it and then you had a go. But walking down the high street, you, you everything, it seems to all look the same. It kind of is just carbon copies of each other. Um, without without the the label or at the top of the the shop, uh, you probably will be hard pressed to to even know which which designer or which brand it was. So everything was the same, and I I became a bit you know I was I wasn't infused with the current offering basically. So I thought to myself, okay, so so if this is not it, this this kind of off the peg, what is the alternative? You know, what potentially can give that excitement? Give give the kind of infuse the the kind of frisson of pleasure that you get when you see something new that you really want and then you know through a bit of research I came across bespoke tailoring in several and then I came across the price <laughs> so it became a, a case of to one of two options I'll either have to spend all my money acquiring these these objects or I can learn how to make it for myself and then earn money by selling what I know how to make. So one or one way or the other, you well, know, I'll have point. to lose. I think, I think you're not alone <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. I remember I was working with the tailor yeah. at the time and he said, I wouldn't be able to dress the way I, I, I do if I, if I wasn't. A There's just no way it would be in the head. <laughs> That's it, you know. So, so that's, so that's that kind of the motivation. That was a bit of the motivation. That, yeah, that was a bit of the motivation. So that realization, realizing that, you know, and then as you delve a bit deeper, then you realize the potential because, you know, and this is by no means an indictment on um, the fashion industry, but the fashion industry does seem rather distracted. You know, they've got, you know, unrealistic timetables. They've got, you know, they have to keep on releasing um, show after show after show various um, collections continuously and just realistically speaking it's not really possible to produce 
high level quality um substantial in a, in terms of creative diversity objects with that kind of pressure on yourself you know i think you've got certain ones like um azadine alea who kind of shunned that kind of idea and decided to go up on his own timetable because realizing that going at that kind of speed is very difficult to to produce quality at such a high level and because you know, sometimes for me even if i think of one good idea in a in a year <laughs> that's a, that's a good year let alone having to come up with you know I don't know how many how many um, collections they have to come up with, but yeah. So you can see it was a bit. It seemed a bit distracted, and then they, you know, they look. It's more looking backwards. So a lot of it is starting to look more further backwards than forwards. Um, what do you so, mean by that? Well, I mean, because if you look at all the top brands, you can see that a lot of their stuff is inspired by archives now of their own archives. So like, it's going more historic stuff rather than newer stuff. They're kind of going back in a in a circle so a lot you know i think for about i don't know probably five maybe pushing ten but five ten years you've seen a big push to kind of vintage stuff you know things that were were done previously and then it's kind of recycled so you know the big labels you see them going back into vintage and it's been going to vintage you know for quite some time now and it's, 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 there's a big push and it seems to stay in vintage looking backwards. But then I thought to myself, OK, then what does the future look like? How we dress ourselves? Effectively, we're replacing our skin. This is our projection of ourselves you know, into the world. If we're constantly looking backwards, but in terms of the world, technology and the various other industries, they're pushing forward at a, a ravenous pace. You know, how does the two marry up? Because at one point there's going to be a disconnect where... We're surrounded by so much technology, so much advancement that we as human beings will probably feel out of place, uh, you know, with that kind in that kind of environment. I felt that rather than looking backwards, you know, as hard as it is to kind of haul ourselves out of the familiar rut, you know, our minds is very hard when, you know, you're comfortable with what you know. But instead of looking backwards... I think it, we, had, we had to, as you know, especially in the fashion industry or in terms of clothing in general, kind of push the mind to look forward to see what's next, you know, what is possible. Because, I, you know, I just couldn't believe that humans have exhausted all potential or all possibilities in, in the realm of clothing, that, you know, everything has already been done. I just felt that's not possible. I don't know what the next thing is, but I was certain that, you know, there must be something else that if only... The direction was, you know, kind of shifted from looking historically to the future. And there was a kind of collective effort to go forward in terms of perhaps even styling, in cutting, um, scene placements, something that would make, you know, kind of whatever, you know, a futurist, whatever somebody that would wear in a hundred years time. If, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. what would we wear in a hundred years time and try to draw and bring that whatever that is, closer so that, you know, I can actually see it because, I don't, you, know, I, you know, I like to actually see it rather than it, it be... just imagine it. Yeah, precisely. It's it's difficult for you to, to kind of think or to imagine that everything has already been done, which I think is yeah. a very interesting point because there are, there are a lot of people who say, you know, in tailoring, specifically in men's tailoring, everything's been done. And I think and one, you know, from one point of view, I think that is largely true in terms of traditional menswear. You have your morning coat, you have your dinner jacket, you have, I mean, those are the models of traditional menswear. A problem with that 
with that mindset of everything has already been done is that it doesn't really give you anything to aspire to. It doesn't really give you any direction or forward momentum. And what I would, I mean, I'm curious what to know what you would think about this, which is what if you acted as though everything wasn't already done? What do you think about yeah. that? No, 100%, precisely. And funny enough, because, you know, I had interest in clothing from a very early age and I was quite artistic. Um, but I knew that, you know, being artistic comes naturally. Um, but in terms of accounting and numbers, that didn't come naturally. But one thing I didn't want to do was go down the artistic route and go through the academic route because uh, as humans, you know, we're, we're very malleable in terms of the way we're taught uh, the in terms of you know what we're imprinted with so that means and going the being, academic artistic route is like going to an art school studying yeah art. fashion school so oh. studying it yeah to be honest i can't say too much because i never went but i felt that you would be told kind of what is how to do something rather than approaching it with thinking it's a blank slate if that makes sense you know because i feel i felt that if you're being taught you know that even even drawings, they can teach you how to draw, how it's supposed to look. Or even with music, they'll teach you how it's supposed to sound. And I felt with with fashion, they'll teach you, you know, this is how you do something. You know, this is how you make a pocket. But I was of the opinion that what if, you know, potentially you kind of decided, I want a pocket to look like this without thinking about how it is done. And then from that point, when you have a kind of a figurative imagination of what you want, then you go about deciding how do, how do we get there yeah, from what are, I already reverse imagined. engineer it. Reverse engineer it, precisely. But if somebody shows you how to make a pocket, you might not be able to imagine it any other way because now you know, you know how to make you know, a specific you know, object and this is how it's done. Not, not, not to say that's not, that's not useful, but yeah, personally, I, want, I didn't want to kind of go through it academically. And perhaps later we will talk about it. That's why I kind of went to just get the knowledge. Well, yeah, um, so let's. But I felt so like it. We stopped. Where did we. We left off. So you're walking through, let's say, High Street and you're seeing all these, all these different brands. Yes. When was it that you made the jump? So you're in accounting, you know, you're thinking, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? Am I going to do this until I'm 60 or 70 or retire? And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I do it? I'm not sure. Um, what was. Do you, I mean, do you remember the day or do you remember. What, what was the actual switch? Like, what was the first, maybe you went to a tailor yeah. shop or you had an apprenticeship with somebody or yeah. what, what was that first kind of tailoring That's experience? It. There wasn't really a tailoring experience. In fact, I think it came when I discovered, kind of when I realized that I wanted to try and create something I imagined, basically. I wanted to create, because I had a feeling of what I wanted to wear, but I couldn't see it anywhere in the shops. Don't know, it's just like this feeling. You have the feeling yeah. of what, what you want to wear. Like, you know what it should feel like, what it should look like. But I couldn't see it. So I wanted to be able to make what I imagined. So then I think the, the main step was when I came up with a, a brand. So the brand that I came up with is called Seraph Mundus. And it basically means burning one's universe. So the idea was to kind of create a universe for those that burn out of the ordinary. So they do not kind of subscribe to the general consensus of this is how you know, it should be but they they feel like something's different and they want something that is immaculately done it's well thought out and it's individual for them it's not somebody else's patterns not somebody else's measurements that you know you're forced to go in you know and and you're not uncomfortable and and that was one of the other things because you know i was sitting there in clothes and then you really you start to realize it dawns on you how uncomfortable you are 
you know, because the clothing is not really made for you. So for me, it was my arms. So the, you know, any suit I wore, the arms would just be too tight, you know. But then if you get a bigger arms, then the jacket's too big. And then you have to kind of adjust. And then when you get adjusted, then it still just doesn't look quite right. So, yeah, I think out of that kind of frustration as well. And and I think, you know, we have been kind of conditioned to just accept clothing that's off the peg, that's made for a generic individual. But, you know, many years ago, everybody had bespoke, to, you know, everybody wore something that was made for them. So really, we shouldn't be wearing <laughs> clothing that isn't made for us because everybody's in, you know, I'm sure you know, as especially in tailoring, everybody's, you know, so many different nuances, you know, one shoulder lower than the other. Somebody's mm-hmm. got you know, big arms, big chest, you know, sometimes the same measurements, but a completely different figuration. Where did you get into a tailor shop or where, when was the first time that you, you sat in front of somebody and they said, oh, you want to be a tailor? Do you know how to use a thimble? Is that, I mean, when was that sort of experience? <laughs> did that ever happen right. or was that something that you experienced yeah. at your house? Yeah. Like, how am I going to figure out how to, how to sew? Or... So once I came up with the logo, uh, the logo and the brand, then effectively I just decided just one day I felt like, you know, I've saved enough to invest in myself. And I thought, you know, this is it. And then I handed in my notice. So after, you know, I handed in my notice, I saw the course at Newham. So I was looking at the course at Newham. So I saw the course at Newham. And then I went to Newham College. So that was where, you know, I first kind of got introduced into, into tailoring. So when I went to Newham College, so I thought, okay, let me do this course and then see, you know, this is what I'm looking for. So, yeah, so then I went to Newham. Great, great people. There, we had a teacher named Valentine. You're working as an accountant, and you come yeah. up, you formulate this brand, and then you say, "Okay, look, I've got X amount of time." What was kind of your deadline in your head? Were you thinking like, "Okay, I have five years to make this happen before I have no money and I have to go back to accounting"? Yeah. Like, what was that yeah. sort of process in your head? Because I, what you did was extremely courageous. From you know, from yeah. my point of view, that's extremely courageous to say, "Okay, I've saved up this money." I'm going to go out there and try it and give it my best. And yeah. at the end, if things don't work out, I guess I'll just, I'll figure something out. Like what, what was, yeah. did you have that thought going through your head? About, yeah. I have X amount of time to get this done. I really shot myself in the foot because while I counted, you know, when people come up with me saying, oh, they've got these ideas, I'll say, you know, just do it. You know, cause I said it's far better to kind of try something rather than just live with the regret of what if, so then, effectively, when it came upon me that I had an idea, I really couldn't back out now and then, you know, just say, like, oh, I can't do it. Because, you know, I had to, you know, You're I'm like already I've kind so of preaching. I, <laughs> precisely. I've told so many people, you know, to just do it. Because the worst thing that can happen, and that's the thing, is it? Psychologically, is is quite difficult. But humans, we're, we're incredibly resourceful. And if you just try something, you realise that it probably isn't as hard as... We we imagined it. One thing, and I thought at least at least try. You know, I'd rather try and fail, and then I can always go back into accounting. But you know, there's there's no profit in in just holding on to a what if, uh, for me personally. So yeah, yeah so that that effectively was it. And once I kind of that realization dawned in. You know, you heard people were like, oh, my days, how could you do that? Oh, what if this are? I said, you know, because humans were very bad at predicting the future. You just never know. Uh, what is going to happen until you actually make the first step and then when you, you make the first step you see you know you kind of have a look around what's going there and then 
yeah, activate your brain, your thinking equipment to try and resolve problems. You know, yeah. so yeah, so I had I had a goal. Um, I'm here today. This is where I want to be. Then the next question is, what steps do I need to take to achieve it? And and that's all it is, isn't it? It's just kind of bridging the space between where you are today and where you want to be, and then taking one step at a time. So yeah, so from there, I felt like it would take about five years. I felt to get to where I wanted to be, even though I believed I would do it earlier. But it's probably taken about five years, to be honest. So my initial estimate was was probably a bit closer to reality. But yeah, I heard somewhere that things usually cost twice as much and take three times as long. So yeah, compared to any predictions, and I think that's probably a bit closer to than than thinking things will come too quickly. So. So you yeah, kind of so set out thinking, okay, it. in five years, if things aren't working out, I'm coming back to the to an accounting firm, basically. Yeah, I mean that that option was always there. Um, to be honest, I I really felt like I'll I'll have I'll figure something out. You know, I felt like I'll I'll figure something out, and part of that has been with the tools. You know, because yeah. I feel like once once you get out of there, I think your job is to spot opportunity. And there has to be opportunity. You know, it, it might not be labelled opportunity, but once you're out there and you have that time to to actually just think, because one, you're not getting paid, so you've got a bit of an incentive to actually, you know, <laughs> get up and, and do things. And you don't have a, you know, a nine to five steady income. Uh, so, yeah, it's just that I thought that with that amount of time, being able to just sit back, look, analyse, there, there will be opportunities that you can take advantage of. And I thought, with, especially with tailoring, the beauty of it is that it's quite, it's a, it's a physical product, you know, because I could, I could say I'm the best accountant in the world and I might have a piece of paper to prove it, but, you know, and, and, and that, that would be it. But with tailoring, it doesn't matter what you say, it will be show me a jacket. So I thought, okay, if I can kind of devote all my, you know, perfectionism, my attention to trying to make something perfect in terms of make a physical product that is perfect or as close as possible to it. The opportunity will come because if you are, if you can make a physical product to a high standard, there will be people that will appreciate it. You know, that, and that was my thought process. So as long as the work that you produce is to a high enough standard, there will be opportunities for you. So yeah. my focus was not to worry too much about what if I can earn, but to focus on getting the work to a high enough standard and then using that to take advantage of any opportunities that would present itself at that point, even if I cannot see it in the present moment. I think it is, it is part of law, laws of existence as well. I, I, that might be getting into a bit of philosophical, but you know, I, do, I do believe that if you do put in work, and, you know, it's like the kind of things that you, you reap what you sow kind of thing, yeah. isn't it? So that if you do put in the work, I do not believe, of course, you know, unfortunate things can happen. But if you do put in the work, you put in the time and effort, I do believe it will pay off, you know, in some way or the other. Or sometimes it might just be a case of being able to spot the opportunity. Um, but I do think that it is as simple as try making sure what you're producing is good enough and to a higher standard, a very good standard, and opportunity must, you know, must come. That kind of streamlined some things for me. I want to go back to kind of this progression that you're, that, yeah. that we're going on here. So you're at Newham College, 
that is where you get your yeah. your feet wet. And what what was yeah. your experience like there? I mean, did you do a full course? I'm not 100% familiar with, with the courses that they offer. I've heard a lot of things that, you know, their courses are kind of changing. Maybe they aren't what they used to be. What was yeah. your experience like there? I know you'd mentioned Valentin. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you had a few teachers there, I believe. So Valent, Valentin was there, and Sasha was there, Joanne, great, great teachers. And funnily enough, I recently found out that um, I think Sasha tried to get me in contact with one of the tailors. I told him to call me, to take me on as an apprentice. And I only found this out. He did it, but I found this out later when I sold him a tool. And he was like, oh, Emmanuel, that name rings a bell. So, you know, the, the teachers, they do, they, they do look out for you. The reason I went to New Orleans is because of their link with um, Savaro. And like you said, I do, I have heard that it's changing a bit, um, that the link is not as um, as prominent as it used to be. But when, when I did go, I think it was dwindling, but there was still quite a link. So we managed to spend a day where we went and visited some tailoring shops. Um, but previously, before my time, I believe you even had work experience in actual tailors if he was in New England College but when I was there that had that had since then ceased that would have been really good um but yeah by the time I I got there um, well yeah that had been my understanding that it was kind of this really link like you were saying with Savile Row where you you have there's this sort of academic side but then you're also pairing that with an apprenticeship on Savile Row so you kind of get the best of both worlds you get like the academic attention at Newham College and that while you're you're on the row you get the real work experience with a lot of these um, these tailoring houses, they're small operations, and uh, perhaps they just couldn't, you know, they couldn't sustain that kind of that influx. But yeah. it was really unfortunate that I missed that. But so the the course was, was you know, it was quite good. Um, Valentine was brilliant. You know, he knew his stuff, and then you also had garment construction that you had to do, which. <laughs> it was so funny because you know many of the students came for the tailoring but you you're kind of forced to do this um, garment construction which is a bit kind of machine work and it's like this isn't what i came here for this isn't what i came here for <laughs> and you're just kind of you know gritting your teeth through it and whatnot but you know it's it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's useful enough but it's kind of just kind of more factory it's helpful to to many people but it's especially if you've already come with the mindset that you're only doing tailoring. It, it seemed like a, a bit of an inconvenience, but it is quite useful. It does show you some some of the methods that um, they use in factories to kind of quickly uh, get things done, like quickly make things. It's a more um, industrial method. Which, which, which is good. More industrial method, precisely. And so yeah, then with so, Valentine, yeah, so you were doing st- mostly cutting, and then you had other teachers that would do more of the, confe- the, the making of the garment? No, no, no. So Valentine was tailoring. So that was tailoring in terms of making the garments. So he done the garments. The other teachers were doing more of the industrial side. So oh, the construction okay. method. So you had, yeah, so that was the garment construction, which was more of the industrial side. But with, um, and then you had the a pattern cutting side as well. The level I done, we didn't learn how to, you know, cut a jacket. It was, but I was only there for three months, basically. So, yeah, so I'd done, I'd done the first level and then I decided to go off to Savaro. It's better to get into the belly of the beast, you know, because I kind of felt like, okay, this seems like, well, you know, I've gotten enough to know that this is what I want to do. Now, you know, where, where's where the action is? Let's get into the thick of it. And it was Savaro, so I thought, all right, time to head there. You know, it's, it's really, it's really, I've gotten what I've needed to get. 
so you're three months at Newham College, and then you throw yourself onto the road. What what was that transition like? Who did you get in touch with? What what did you kind of go around right. knocking on knocking on these appointment only businesses, yeah. <laughs> trying to find a yeah find some sort of apprenticeship? So yeah, so I went I went to to a few, and I had a friend that already worked on Savile which was a was a Henry Poole. His name was Tom Pendry, great guy. So yeah, I had a friend that already worked there. So kind of being able to go and see him gave me a bit of, you know, a slight confidence boost to kind of go into other houses because once you get in, you get a feel for kind of the environment. Kind of makes it easier to knock on knock on other doors because you've already been in, in at least one. So, yeah, it was really, you know, that was a real bonus for me. That was a real help. But, yeah, so we went through a, a couple of places, but then, unfortunately, they didn't have any spaces open. So I took, like, a waistcoat I made, etc. So they didn't really have any spaces open. And I think with Savaroo, it is a bit of timing because you just have to be in the right place at the right time when somebody has left or moved on and there's a free bench and then somebody to train you, etc. So, you know, there's there's quite a big amount of um, serendipity, I would say, yeah, yeah to, to kind of land a place. So I was you know, taken around. So then I looked at um, this course, the Savaroo Academy course that was in... Uh, Maurice Sedwell. Um, I spoke to Valent, Valentine about it to to see his thoughts, and then yeah, he said that is you know the, Maurice Sedwell, you know, the very good good tailor. Because that's another thing I was I was worried about. I didn't really I didn't really want to go to a tailor that will kind of teach you you know a kind of cowboy method. If that makes sense. Interesting. What, what could you explain that? Could you unpack that cowboy method? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have no idea what you're talking about, Beth. Yeah, <laughs> there are there are you know some some people that really is it's about the money. It's more about speed and doing things quickly and as efficient as possible. And they just kind of just you know it just gets put together, mm-hmm. and not not in the most probably the most elegant way or the most precise way. Um, so yeah, speaking to a few tailors, they they told me that you know I was informed. Thankfully, all the people I know are incredible tailors and they're all brilliant. None of them are cow- cowboys, but yeah, I was told that you know there are there are cowboys out there. They they kind of glue things like fuse things together and all the, in places that you won't see, etc. And yeah, that that kind of worried me because I didn't want to kind of fall into the hands of you know a tailor that will show you oh this is how you do, it, and then later on you find out that. That's that's not that's not it, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, so if I was going to learn, I wanted to learn, you know, properly to a to a high level. So yeah, so yeah, Valentine assured me that you know Maurice said was you know the very very good high level, as as is much of the other houses on the road as well. But they were the ones that were offering a course at the time. So yeah, I took a I took a waistcoat, went to see Andrew Ramroop to join the course. Um, so when I went to see Andrew Ramroop, I had a chat with him, told him you know, what I wanted to do, the, you know, show them the, the work I had. And then he, he liked me. And then, in fact, he told me, he said I could work in the shop. This is even before the course. So I could just work in the shop um, front of house, um, which was great. And then, he, so then I started the next week. That's incredible. Yeah. So just literally just walking in and talking to them. And I think that's that's one of the, one, one of the things that, you know, if individuals are trying to get into, they have to understand is end of the day even though they may not seem like it everyone's a human being you know everyone's a human being 
So just going in and genuinely talking to them, uh, you, you just never know what could come out of it. So yeah, just kind of just talking to him, you know, showing your showing you know you're serious that you want to do something, and then yeah, you managed to got got a position there to come in the next week uh, front of house, and that really helped kind of get an understanding of how things kind of work, base fittings, and you know just just the kind of the the hustle and bustle of of the road, get a real feel for it, and this was about six months before the course was to start um, the following year. What a great opportunity that is. You kind of get yeah. working in front of house, I think, kind of gets maybe a bad rap, I think. Myself being in Italy and seeing English tailoring or, or tailor the tailors in London, it's kind of like the front of house people, the front of house staff aren't necessarily the most knowledgeable. They don't really know what they're doing. But at the end of the day, they get to see they get to see kind of the whole operation. So if you're smart and you know what you're doing, like which is what it seems like that you did, you kind of got the the eagle eye view, the overhead view of what was going on in the entire tailor shop. You managed to get your fingers, you know, in in a few few pieces of pie. So it gives you an opportunity to, if if you want to make yourself available, to kind of get an understanding of of uh, the various um, departments, if you put it that way. So, you know, you have to start to learn about cloth because you're talking to customers, so you have to learn about cloth. Um, then you kind of have to, you speak to the tailors and obviously there aren't customers all the time, so then you're putting base fittings together or you're taking base fittings apart. One of the first things I was doing was to actually take apart a fitting and he said you know use the opportunity to understand how it gets put together because obviously you're reverse engineering so if you're taking it apart it gives you a certain idea of how the tailor put it together um so that was you know a great kind of opportunity to obviously you're taking these uh, these um, fittings apart but you're you're taking the the sleeves off first so you know that the sleeves go on last then you know they're removing the shoulder sleeve and so then you're seeing kind of the steps it all go in reverse. And then, yeah, it gives you a good feel for how things look and how things feel. So you did that for about yeah. six months. Yes. So I've done that for a little less because um, at that point, I had to go back briefly into um, kind of financial work just to kind of <laughs> top up the, the kitty a little, you know. You have to be practical as well, you know. So, yeah, so I went, I went back in three yeah, three or four months and then I went into back into the finance world uh, for a contract for another three months to, to kind of replenish the, the belly of the beast yeah and then and then yeah then I was ready for for the the January start so yeah and what did you think of the course oh excellent excellent I mean with tailoring it's it's funny because you might you know you'll come in with romantic ideas of what you expect it to be and the reality may be different to what you initially imagined. But I think it takes imagination, again, to see that with what you, you get, you can turn it into the imagined reality that you have. Uh, so it won't look like it in the beginning, but if you stick with it long enough, it will become exactly what you imagine. So, yeah, quite similarly, it's um, the course, you get as much out as you put in, because the, the good thing about it and really why I, I wanted to invest in it is that it teaches you everything from start to finish. You know, you won't be perfect, but at least you'll know it. So it teaches you how to cut a jacket, how to take measurements. And then, so then you can create a pattern for trousers, waistcoats, and a jacket. And then, and then you know how to make a trouser, waistcoat, and a jacket. 
you know, an and, then, so then, and very intense, very intense. So to, and to condense all of that knowledge into a year and a half, you know, some, cause even each one, sometimes, you know, it takes four years, seven years, you know, to complete one after the other, but to do, to cover all bases, you know, it was, it was quite intense, but yeah, it suited me well because I wanted to be able to, to do every, every aspect of, of the garment, or, yeah, every, every garment. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by subscribing now. If you have any thoughts or comments, please feel free to share them with us on Instagram, Facebook, or directly on our website at discoverartifacts.com. Now, back to the show. Um, I wanted to be able to do it myself. So, yeah, so it teaches you how to make trousers, how to make a waistcoat, how to make a jacket in a year and a half, and then you learn how to cut, and you learn how to um, do a, a base fitting, fittings on customers as well. So basically, the whole, the whole lot condensed. It gives you an excellent foundation to springboard off, uh, which, which is good. You know? So that's, that's the thing. So it gives you an excellent foundation. Okay, so you've gone through Newham College. You transferred back, yeah. or you transferred onto the row. Took a, a three-month sabbatical as you went, as you went back in, <laughs> into accounting. <laughs> I don't know if you called a sabbatical, but you took three months off. Or, yeah. you know, you had to fill fill up with gas again, or whatever you want to. Call it. <laughs> That's it. Um, That's it. Where, so, and then you finish the school. You finish uh, the Savile Row Academy, and what happens after? Because yeah. I know I've talked with you before, and what you're currently doing right now, I find very admirable. What what, what are you doing right now? Or I mean, does that bring us up to where you are now, more or less? Or are, is there are there is there another section? Yeah, yeah, almost. Yeah. So effectively, with um, while while on the courses on the Savile Academy course, um, obviously because you needed the tools to to kind of do these work, but. I couldn't find anywhere where I can actually get get these tailoring tools. So effectively, I just decided to to make them. Actually, and one actually one point is that prior to this, I made a cutting table because obviously space space in London is quite difficult. So then I now I looked at the bed and I thought, you know, this this bed is taken up you know real estate throughout throughout the whole of the day, but you know it's not being utilized. So I thought I either have to make the bed disappear or put something over the bit. So then I managed to make a, a folding cutting table that sits like a head and then it opens up and covers the bed completely. So then it turns into effectively a, a workshop. And, and that had been a lifesaver because before I was cutting on the floor and I just felt like this is doing my backing, you know, in, in a couple of years of this and <laughs> I won't be able to stand up straight. So, you know, there had to be something that had to be done. So, yeah, I managed to make that um, that cutting table that goes up over the bed. So then after that, I thought, you know what, I should be able to make to make some tools. You know, if if I could do that, it kind of gave me the confidence to be able to make some tools. So then, yeah, started to design them, to make them, and then a few a few people started asking me to make it for them. And then I think it got to the stage where I just went to every single tailoring house on the road, and then also in surrounding areas just to introduce myself and have a chat and to tell them what I do. That's why I, I must say I'm quite fortunate to have it because what gave me confidence is I had something to offer. You know, yeah. I was just walking into 
kind of waste their time. So because I had something to offer, something, you know, something, you know, part of my discussion, I was able to go in. And then obviously, because I'm also taking the course, I can also speak, you know, fairly, fairly intelligently about clothing as well. So to have a, a decent discussion with them and then show them one and then that that kind of got the foot in the door and then people they started to order the biggest thing was just meeting so many different tables then being able to pick their brains like okay i've been taught how to do it this way and how do you do it seeing all the various nuances that that they accomplish the same the same the same work or the same the different aspects of the garments and then yeah, so then that that was kind of the, the catalyst, really. So then became something quite dear to me. So even when you make a tool and then you deliver it, the look on their faces that like they're so happy and it really made it made it worth it. Even though, to be honest, it has been uh, a bit of a detour uh, from the term, but these tailors were so grateful. Right? They just couldn't find the, the, the tools anyway. And because I was tailoring as well, I was able to make adjustments to the tool so that it works. For, for tailors you know so i'll be i'll try it out and then i'll be oh this doesn't quite work or there's an issue with this and then i'll make those adjustments just to be clear for people that aren't familiar with what you do and with the tools yeah. that you make so you your uh, business is mundus tna so effectively it's just it's there to provide all the tools that a tailor needs to kind of effectively accomplish their work basically so you know i've fought many times over the years to kind of close it close it down and then focus on the kind of jacket making and tailoring and that, that would probably would have been more lucrative but uh, just the kind of the appreciation that I got the feedback that uh, you know I got when when somebody received a tool that they've been looking perhaps years for to find one brand new but all they can find is you know second hand and then I think and then one of my main things to make it look beautiful as well I really wanted to to make them not just functional, but to look beautiful. Because if you know you're trying to make beautiful garments, but you're surrounded with tools that do not reflect, you know that that same um, aesthetic. I think it's it's conflicting. So it was important to me to also make the tools not only functional but look beautiful, so that the the tailor space is kind of the best environment for them to produce the the best work. So it kind of really worked on proportions and curves and angles and things like that. So that's that really is what yeah, Mundus TNA is there for. So it's there for tailors and it's just there to provide them with the tools that they, they, they need. You know, so you've got chalk sharpness, sleeve boards, um, edge boards, half moons, clappers, tailor hands, and then you've got the every one now and again I get these custom requests. The the gentleman wanted you know, a, a massive sleeve board, and they managed to make it happen. Um, but funny enough, when I when Andrew saw it, he said that apparently that's how the sleeve board looked back in the day. Um, so, yeah, I mean, perhaps perhaps the guy is onto something. I don't know, but yeah, so yeah, it was, but it was it was large. It was extremely extremely large. So yeah, so custom orders as well. Is, is this happening simultaneously? So you're finishing the. Um... The Savile Row Academy, right? That's a year and a half yeah. intense, just kind of like your personality, yeah. I would say. Um, where, <laughs> where, so where does Mundus TNA fit in? Is that happening kind of at the at the back end of the school of the of the Savile Row Academy, and then and then you're continuing with it, or does that happen after you went to the academy? Yeah, so I was making I was making the tools, but that brand is fairly recent. 
years. Yeah, so I, I have been making the tools for about three years before I launched Mundus T. And so in uh, so three years, you're making these tools for tailors, and then you finally launch Mundus TNA. What are what were and what are the the biggest roadblocks that you ran into when you were doing that? I mean, I know you already talked a little bit about how you're you know you're learning jacket making, you're learning how to be a tailor, and then on top of that, you put this whole other profession basically of woodworking and growing another company, which is related to tailoring, but it's not the same thing. What have been and that in itself, I'm sure, has been a difficulty. Is a difficulty as well as an advantage. But what have been some of the other difficulties that you've encountered on that road? These other tailors, friends, they they get used to certain tools and tools performing in a certain way. So, and with tailoring, if you have a tool that just doesn't quite work or there's an issue with it, it you know, it really grinds grinds on the gears, uh, really. So, kind of creating tools that each tailor, whoever buys it, will be happy with. Um, so uniformly or or even speaking to them to see if they want anything that's made. I think that's probably been one of the kind of the biggest challenges to so that every tool I, you know, I, I make for a tailor, they're 100% happy with it and it actually benefits and helps them in, in, in the work that they're doing. Well, yeah. And that's again, another great comparison to bespoke tailoring because with bespoke tailoring, it's all yeah. about the attention to the client and the service that that client gets. As much as it, as it is to have a great uh, garment, you know, a great suit, even more so, I think it's the attention to detail and the attention to the client that that really makes a big For difference. Sure, and I know, you know, I can tell you personally, I I purchased one of your chalk sharpeners, and I cannot tell you how excited I was when I got here. It was like, <laughs> it's like. <laughs> I feel like I should be that kind of excited when something like you know if I won the lottery, or something. but it was kind of like it was just this thing that was missing that finally now I have, and it's like oh you know I need a piece of sh- uh, yeah. sharp chalk. Okay, I can get it. That's the thing. That's kind of that's what kept um, Mundus TNA alive, really, because it, I just I really I really couldn't um, kind of couldn't close it completely and then just focus on on the tailoring side. Just simply because it meant so much to people, especially yeah. when they they you know they receive something and something that's quite arcane and uh, so niche a product really because you know it's never going to be massive you know how many tailors are there it's not it's not it's never going to be massive and the ones I make it should last a lifetime so you you should you know you wouldn't need more than one so it's not it's not about the money really it's not, it's not about it's not a monetary monetary thing it's um, it's mainly just kind of providing people that need it, um, you know, the tools that that they they require, and yeah, the appreciation has been phenomenal. Honestly, I, I couldn't tell you how many kind of how many thank you messages, you know, how many uh, responses that, that I've received just because they have been looking for it so for so long, and they, all they've had is something that's been handed down over generations, and now they manage to get you know something that is their own, you know, brand new that. Perhaps they can pass down, you know, yeah. through through the generations, and and I think yeah, that's that's quite quite profound and quite important. Well, I want to ask you kind of about a different subject. I know Mundus sure. TNA and and the tools that you have made and are continuing to make have kind of gotten your foot in the door with a lot of tailors. 
and have helped those tailors to see you or or I guess to respect you right off the bat and to kind of uh, look at you with a bit more respect. And I know one tailor that you, that you do respect is Michael Brown. And we've talked about Michael, Michael Brown before. First off was the chalk sharpener, any of your tools, was that kind of what you got you in the door with Michael Brown? And then, after that, we'll we'll say. I mean, what is it that you admire about Michael Brown as well? As more of the meat of the question. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, because with Michael, um, I actually met him when he was at Chilbrown Morgan. I literally, because I walked into Chilbrown Morgan and um, showed them the chalk sharpener that 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 I made, and I remember he was like, "So you made this?" And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> so yeah, he, he he was quite impressed with that. So then that's when you yeah, we exchanged numbers. So then and then after a while, when he set up his own his own uh, house and his own label, uh, then he ordered a few more more things as well. So yeah, I've known him for quite 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 some years. But you know what I do like about him is I think he especially and the Chilbrough Morgan style is you know you've got different styles of tailoring and each each style resonates with different people, you know, it's like music. Um, some, some, a house might be playing a, you know, certain, certain musician will play a song that resonates with a person and then another person, another musician would. So the kind of structured style, sharp lines, you know, suppression on the waist, that was kind of, that spoke to me more. And that was the kind of work that I saw them doing at Chilbrough Morgan and certainly Michael Brown's kind of work so it kind of resonated with me personally I know that some people you know they'll prefer softer tailoring they'll prefer you know a variety of different um, hybrids of tailoring but yeah for me that kind of really resonated and then his kind of approach the the methodical nature of it you know and just he was quite you know he's very approachable just a cool down-to-earth general genuine guy so yeah just just having a chat talking about the views on tailoring and everything um, and then seeing the work, and then you, know, you you kind of make a jacket, and you you're quite happy with yourself. Then you go in, and then you see some people's work, and they are like, okay. Back to the drawing board. I need to <laughs> I need to start again and step things up because the, the level is just so high. You know, you can walk into, and this this is for many of the houses on the road as well. But you know, you walk into Children Morgan, you see Michael Brown stuff, and then you just look at the level that is what is they're, they're performing that, and it shows you what is possible for a human being. And then you're like, okay, this is possible. Somebody can do it. So then it gives you that motivation to to kind of to to do it also. So it just really kind of resi- resonated with me the, the cut and the, the kind of the the structured style. You know, I kind of I I really liked that. It's the young aesthetic, but you know, angular and then kind of very very precise. Um, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, enjoyed well, that. Yeah, and I'm not 100% sure about the, the actual construction of of, uh, of Michael's garments. I don't know, perhaps you might know a little bit more about the type of the padding, the shore that he might use, because more Milanese type of tailoring is more structured, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's heavier. Um, you have sharper lines, but that doesn't necessarily add weight. Yeah, in in terms of the weight, because the weight is just, it depends on you know the kind of canvas that is used, the horsehead, the demet, um, the the sharpness of the lines. Because the idea is you you really don't want a jacket to be too heavy, uh, even even if it's structured, you still want it to be comfortable for the wearer. 
And I think that's where where himself and of course he trained from Chilbrough and Morgan. So a lot of that DNA you can see um kind of seeping through. So I know with with Joe, they, they do very minuscule pass stitches, so thousands of pass stitches, you know, perfectly, you know, extremely neatly done and very compressed. And that oh that you see the the multitudes of passages, that's what gives the stick the stiffness of mm-hmm. the jacket. So that's what makes it quite rigid as well. And then that's how you know you kind of achieve that effect. But in terms of lightness, from because I've I've held the, the jacket is uh, you can feel the weight, but once you put it on, you know, because it's well balanced, it's the weight is evenly distributed, uh, you know, around around the body, so it doesn't feel heavy. Uh, once it's on on the body, yeah, I think yeah, it was the style, the style really that I liked. But of course, you know, you've got you've got many many tailors on the road, incredibly knowledgeable, uh, you know, that know their stuff, and that they, and many of them has helped me along the way, you know. So yeah, it's just it's just great to kind of have that foot in the door, like you said, because I met Michael through the tools, I met Joe through the tools, and many of the other tailors. You know, James Leiter, Dell, that used to be at Kilgore. Obviously, all the the, the team at um, Maurice Edward, that is practically home uh, because that's where I kind of, you know, I've, you kind of cut your teeth. Um, so all of the, the guys there, you know, incredible team there. And then usually when you start naming people, that's when you start missing some and then... <laughs> You're like, oops, you know, you, you don't want <laughs> to offend anybody. anybody. You're like, oh. You cannot forget anybody. You can't yeah. forget anybody either. Like Richie, who else? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's this, there's so, so many people, so many people on the road. You know, so many other tailors like Michael Brown that has kind of helped helped me, especially yes. on the on the way, like yeah. on the path, really. Um, yeah, so, because Michael Brown's just kind of great guy, the, the, the kind of vision and the drive. And the... Uh, I think the approach, because he even speaks of tailoring as couture, you know, so he wants to make it, you know, to finesse, the finesse there, you know, to make it beautiful and elevated to to a certain standard. You look at the work, especially on Instagram, and, you know, some of it, you know, it's inspiring, really, to show, to see kind of what is possible, especially if it's if it, that's the kind of the style that you resonate with. I know for many, it may be too, or for some, perhaps, you know, it's... It's quite structured. You know, some may prefer things slightly more relaxed. You know, it's completely opposite to what Anderson and Shepard do, which is very kind of very loosely fitted. You know, draped cut, quite relaxed. You know, so yeah, so th- that style just kind of resonated with me. But yeah, mainly there, yeah, there's so many, so many individuals on on the road that if you know I was pushed to name them, I probably would would miss out a few names and. Uh, you know, sour, <laughs> sour, 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 some relationships, <laughs> sour, some relationships. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, there's a brilliant. One. I mean, if I if I had to name a few, you know, you've got so like James Leiter, you know, incredible, you know, great guy that you can just have a a real conversation with. You know, you know, Cadden and Dandy, he's been great. He again met through with the tools. So these are all people, you know, through the tools. Uh, Maurice said, well, you know, certainly like I consider that home. That's at home base. Um, so the team, they're great. You know, Andrew Reinrup, you've got Judith, Roger, Sarah, George. George was a you know, Greek tailor, you know, knows his stuff. Um, and Rachel Singer, he was, she was the one that actually taught 
taught me most of the, the course to us. Yeah, I've been wondering. I had been wondering about Rachel Singer because I had. I remember I had followed yeah. her on Instagram, and I've been trying to kind of yeah. figure out what she was up to, where she was working. She's incredible. Yeah, she's yeah. Rachel Singer. She's, <laughs> she's great. Incredible stuff. And the the good thing about her is because she is a coat maker. She she will basically and she's been sewing for such a long time. She will be she will distill all the information that she's managed to to obtain and then present it. In, in a kind of a palatable way. So it was kind of, you got this kind of distilled, refined, well, well-designed well method of making that was just honestly a brilliant, a brilliant foundation to kind of springboard off to, to kind of continue. So yeah, Rachel Singer being a great, great help. Even, and you had Daniel Hayworth as well. He's, because he was um, the head cutter at the time. Uh, so yeah, he was really a real help. And, uh, the the cutter the the head cutter now you know Roger as well you know great guy you know have you know have conversations I think a lot of it is just also just having conversations getting people's thought, yeah. thoughts on you know on thoughts on things Tom Pendry he was at Henry Paul he was a cutter there he was my friend from earlier so which was good Joe Morgan you know Joe Morgan anytime whenever I, I go in you know always greets me with a smile gives me time. You know, because tailors are busy, but it gives me time to kind of talk through various aspects of, you know, I'll come in with a jacket that I've been working on to get his thoughts and opinions. Always gives me time. You know, David as well. I've seen him a few times. He's giving me the time to kind of make, give me some feedback. Yeah. Del at Kilgore, he gave me a lot of help, really, in terms of a different approach in cutting. Um, just things to look at. So then... You get you get different approaches from different houses, and then the houses you kind of combine the two, and then you, you're able to kind you of get this amalgamation. Yeah. yeah, precisely. So I got you know a good bit from Dell, got a bit from Richie, and, Lord, and Richie he was the he was in Alexander McQueen, and had an excellent way of kind of attaching the facing, and then that kind of gave gave me an ah you know a penny drop there. You know, with Dill, a penny dropped with the sleeves, how you put in the sleeves on dark positions, you know. Rachel Singer, obviously, that was kind of a more blanket, uh, kind of all basis kind of foundation that you did on the course. But then whoever you speak to, you get a bit more. Joe, especially with trousers, gave me some great, great tips on kind of putting the pleats and how to, to measure them. Um, so every, everywhere you go, you know, you have the conversations, you know, you, you speak to people and then you get, you know, one nugget from here, one nugget from there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you develop your own style and you see what works for you. It's it's probably rare that someone's complete method will suit you perfectly. Um, so it's more, more than likely that you would have to, you, you're probably better suited to have a combination of different, different methods if you have the opportunity yeah. uh, and then just kind of pick the ones that work for you and then you're able to kind of develop your own your own approach there here in italy and, and it's, just, it's the same sort of thing where they say well, uh, well how do you become if you ask maybe an old tailor here in italy how do you become a master tailor they might tell you well you know you go you work in the tailor shop and you know, you keep, you move around, you do your turn of, of tailor yeah. shops, they call it. You know, you kind of go around five, six, seven, eight tailor shops 
And once you've kind of yeah. been there for a long time, you've seen a lot of different ways of making, uh, then you can kind of invent your own style that's not that doesn't correspond with any of those ways of making, but also at the same time corresponds with those ways of making because it's like you said, an amalgamation <laughs> of all those things. One last question that I wanted to ask you was kind of your thoughts on the state of uh, Savile Row at this point, because I know there are some some sort of people that I uh, have have spoken to, or they say uh, Savile Row isn't what it used to be. But then you also see great people like uh, Michael Brown. There's there's Joe Morgan, Cheddarborough Morgan. You have these great tailoring shops. Um, what? How do you kind of see Savile Row at this point? Right. So um, just, just, just to clarify, when you say, how do I see Savile in comparison to other industries or as how it operates? Or, I mean, I mean, I mean, Savile Row today of, compared to maybe that, Savile Row uh, 20, 30 or 40 years ago. Right. So, <laughs> OK, yeah. So 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, quite difficult. I wasn't alive then. But from what, from what I hear, um, yeah, I can I can only go go based on what. because you look at you look at Savaru and that is uh, it's you know it's two hundred years old or well, coming up to two hundred years um, old really, and uh, you know for an industry to kind of maintain um, its tradition like Savaru has, you know, it's something that should be you know celebrated and applauded, you know, by by any measure. It's not it's not something that's easy to do and it's kind of maintain its cachet if you will its prestige potentially that i think that has been potentially some of its undoing because of this the kind of prestige it you know many people might be slightly intimidated intimidated kind of going into a tailor shop because of that projection of itself and given that these days you know the clientele the, the people that are able to afford the certain luxuries uh, in life. They're, they're not the same people that you had um, 30, 40 years ago. You know, they're not necessarily aristocrats or, or in or political or... circles or royalty, precisely. You know, they're, they're, they're no longer those kind of individuals. You've got people that are making apps, that are making, you know, products that are coming up with ideas, you know, middle class that, you know, that have just... They they've managed to to use the circumstances to come up with these. You've got many people from Asia, etc. You know, so yeah, I think there's a lot of kind of new. You know, you've got millennials, you've got kind of new blood uh, or, or new money in the mix, really. Um, so, in terms of kind of that that prestige, then working against them because they seem unapproachable is probably something that is a barrier to, to many people kind of coming in. I know uh, I've spoken with James Sleater, you know, a number of times with that. And that's, you know, part of the reason he even set, set up that the service, uh, the coffee shop, that's the first coffee shop on the road, actually, to kind of get get people more comfortable with, with speaking uh, to tailors and to walk in, into, into a tailor shop, you know. And many people, they don't know what to expect and they have that fear. So, yeah, I think it's still potentially a bit unfortunate that so many people still are fearful of entering tailor shops just because they, you know, they may feel that they'll, they're out of place or, you know, they'll be forced to purchase something that they're, they're unable to afford or 
I, I think if if tearing houses were more approachable, that probably would be able to open up doors to to many of the other clients. Because now you've got competing options. You know, you've got the the made to measure offerings are becoming increasingly um, better fitting. You know, you've got you know you've got some some companies doing extremely well uh, for a lower price point. And the technology, because they're utilizing technology, uh, they're, big, they're, they're developing more efficient systems that they're, they're improving in their standards. So, you know, the tailoring industry, they're getting pressure. There's pressure for lots of offerings that they really have to compete with. So, yeah, um, I'm not sure if that answered the question. No, it definitely uh, but, did. Definitely did. Well, and I think what you one thing that you mentioned that I found really interesting is uh, the coffee shop, the service. I think that the service, yeah. correct? I think that's going to be yes, correct. A, I I think just that idea is a great yeah. symbol of 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 what's to come, and kind of the fact that there is some innovation, there is some sort of mindset thinking forward about how are we going to continue things, how are we going to make things. Uh, for our new yeah. customers that we're having, for those, uh, as you're saying, those kind of not millennials necessarily, but people that are yeah. that aren't necessarily coming from royalty or the, the Taipei, the, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The people, I think, I think that's that act that I think it's James Sleater, right? The, from um, with, with, who's who's creating the service, right? Yeah, James Sleater, yeah, from yeah. Cabin Dandy. Well, I think, I mean, and and then that also goes back into everything that he does with Cabin Dandy because they, I mean, all of their how they've uh, use technology in their business yeah. um, has been incredible, and I think I think that's just a great sign for the future for tailoring. And for anybody yeah. listening, I would recommend going to see uh, the Hand Cut Radio podcast with James Sleater, which I, I myself very much uh, enjoyed. Yeah, James. I mean, James. He's a great guy. He's a he's a great guy, and um, what I like about him is the, his approach, his his vision, and the and the willingness to act on it, you know, because there's, there is one thing saying that this is what the room needs and it's quite another thing to actually do it. Um, so, yeah, honestly, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy and then you can really see that he he understands that change really is, is something that's good that is required to keep, you know, it's a beautiful street and it's a beautiful street, but without care and attention and, um, being able to adapt to circumstances, unfortunately, it, there's there's the the probability that you know it could die, you know. So it takes kind of innovation like this, kind of um, thinking outside of the box, to to inject the life that that Savile Row is, is known for. People come from around the world to to come to the street. So obviously, it's a bit difficult now with. And everything that's going on, but you know, every every piece of kind of initiatives that that kind of brings life into the street, I think is something to be welcomed. Most definitely, yeah. yeah. Well, Emmanuel, again, I want to thank you for accepting to to do this, and I think what you're doing right now, talking with me, is is exactly the thing that will keep things alive. And talking about what we are doing and why we're doing it is really what will keep things moving forward. Uh, and I so. What is uh, what's the best way that people can get in touch with you if they want to see your work that you're doing, or if they want to uh, perhaps uh, check out some of the tools that you're making? How can they get in touch with you or or find that information? Sure, yeah. So so the best way for the tools is probably direct online. So 
is www.mundustna.com. So that's M-U-N-D-U-S-T-N-A.com. And then also on Instagram. So Instagram is mundustna. And then uh, my personal handle, which has uh, more of the kind of suiting and tailoring elements is uh, Mr. Underscore Mundus. And that's on Instagram as well. So yeah, so those are the the two two ways to get in contact with me. You know, by all means, you know, send send a send a message, direct message, or even you can find the email as well attached. Um, and then, yeah, definitely happy to help. You know, happy to help even aspiring tailors or apprentices or anybody that has any questions. So it's good conversation. That's why you know I really do appreciate what what you're doing, uh, Matthew. Honestly, because the, the amount of things that that comes from conversations is it's 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 undescribable you know many many good ideas started off with just two people talking so um yeah as long as there's conversation it it gives a potential for for something to happen in the future so yeah so it's it's always a good thing to do so yeah by all means keep it up and um i look forward to to more to be honest i look i look forward to more thank you so much emmanuel no is at all anytime Thank you for listening to Common Threads, produced by Artifacts. Make sure to visit our website at discoverartifacts.com and subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or even better, if you'd simply share the show with a friend. Until next time.